Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Join me this week for a quick conversation with Charles Gaines, an iconic outdoor writer and the ingenious creator of paintball. In this episode of Anchored, we delve deep into the pages of Charles's extraordinary career, exploring his contributions to outdoor literature and the unexpected twist of fate that led to the birth of the worldwide sensation, paintball. <laughs> From his early days as an outdoor enthusiast to becoming a celebrated author, Charles Gaines' story is a testament to the power of passion and innovation. I was born in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, and then my father took another job, moved to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, when I was about six. And so I was mostly raised in Birmingham. Okay. In mm -hmm. Alabama, right? But where are you right now? Are you? I'm on the Mississippi coast. I'm in a little town called Ocean Springs, Mississippi. And last week I was fishing for redfish in Louisiana with uh, Meredith McCord. Do you know her? Yes, very well. I love Meredith. Yeah, Meredith is a great friend of mine, and I was down at her little lodge in um, in Louisiana fishing with her. Yeah, yeah. How, how was it? It was not good. We had unbelievably cold weather. We had a freak cold snap down here, and it drove all the redfish out of the marsh, and the fishing was not good, but the eating and the companionship and the camaraderie and the fun was just super good. So it, it didn't really matter. It makes up for it. Um, I was in Arkansas, North Carolina all month last month, and I could not believe how cold it was. Is that, that's unusual, right? Very unusual. Very unusual. I mean, this, this cold snap that we had in Louisiana was 
freakish. I had my friend Ethan Hawke, the actor, and his son yeah. down there with me. And they had never fished for redfish. So I really wanted to put them on some fish. Each of them caught one of those big reds. And that was it. That was all we got for three days of fishing. Yeah, that's One tough. day we couldn't go out at all. We went bowling in instead. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so bring, bring me back to your to your childhood, and um, I never know how to tactfully ask how old somebody is, but if you can give me a rough era as to where we're talking when we think about your your childhood, kind of one to ten. No, I'm happy to tell. I'm 82 years old. Oh and wow! I, and uh, happy to be that because so many of my friends that old are, are no longer with us. So um, I'm still going pretty strong and. Had a great childhood, had wonderful parents, unlike a lot of my friends, um, and uh, was educated sort of spotily. I went to Choate Prep School in Connecticut for a couple of years, didn't like it, took off, hitchhiked around the country, uh, learned a lot of things and things that I wanted to do and things I didn't want to do. And then um, came back, went to Washington Lee University for college, left that went on the road again, uh, finally finished up at a wonderful little university called Birmingham Southern in Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I met my wife, uh, who was then Miss Alabama. And we got married 62 years ago, April. Oh my um, gosh, congratulations. I know, right? Yeah. And uh, we have had a terrific ride. We've lived all over the world and traveled all over the world and raised three wonderful children, have five great grandchildren. So it has been for me a great kick at the can. I've been able to do everything I ever wanted to do and more and um, still have my health and still have um, the affection of my life partner and my children. So I'm a happy man. Excellent. I'm happy that you're a happy man. <laughs> um, there's no way I'm going to let you slide with just that timeline that quickly. I'm going to have to go back through and pick through it if you don't mind. <laughs> I tried to cover it all pretty quickly. Yeah, I'll say. Okay, it's been five minutes. Thank you very much, Mr. Gaines. See you later. <laughs> no, we're we're gonna we're gonna pick through it if you don't mind. Let me go all the way back then before prep school. Before prep school. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you, your parents, I mean, this is kind of a personal question, but did did you, were your parents together? Did you have a regular upbringing, you know, quote unquote, regular upbringing when you were younger? Had a wonderful, um, luckily, my parents were together their whole lives. My father died at 86, my mother at 94, and they had a very happy marriage. Uh, they were well off. Uh, my father did very well in business. And um, we had, I had a, a pretty ideal childhood, except that I was always kind of rebelling against uh, the circumstances into which I was kind of born and raised felt a little bit stifling and limiting to me. And I always wanted to see a bigger world. So I was always trying to get out of what, what seemed to me to be a kind of little prison. Uh, Mountain Brook was the name of the area outside of Birmingham where I grew up. And it was a small affluent area where the male children grew up, all went to the same schools, married debutantes, went to work for their fathers. Um, and 
that was their life, you know, and they didn't really get to do any of the things they wanted to do until they were tired at 65 or 70 and were too old to really enjoy it. And that was not the life I wanted. So aside from my own rebelliousness, I had a perfect childhood. <laughs> Did that, is that what got you into fishing in the outdoors? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew from early on that I wanted to be a writer and I knew from early on that I wanted to do uh, a lot of outside writing because I had read A.J. McLean was my favorite outdoor writer. You're too young to remember him, but he was the fishing editor for Field and Stream, I think, or Outdoor Life. I forget which one. He wrote a great book called The, AJ, the Encyclopedia of Fishing, McLean's Encyclopedia of Fishing, which is a wonderful book. And he was a very good writer, and he'd write these columns about going to Zambia for tiger fish, going to Mongolia for time and going to um, Argentina for Dorado. And um, I was thinking, and, and also he was a great cook and I liked to cook from the time I was really young, still love it. And so he would write about treat blur, the great French way of boiling trout and, you know, all these different words. And I was thinking, man, man, that is, that is the life I want right there. So, as soon as I got into a position where I could do it, I became a journalist and started doing fishing stories and um, had a great gig. I wrote for all three of the outdoor magazines for years, and I have been able to travel everywhere I ever wanted to go, catch every fish I ever wanted to fish on my life, catch on my life list, except for one April. And I'm too old to go do it now. That's the only fish on my A.J. McLean life list that I haven't been able to do. And that's a mashir. That's a, that's a, the yeah. Himalayas, right? Is that where you'd have to go? Himalayas, exactly, right. And I have a friend um, who owns a great um, lodge in Argentina, in Northern Patagonia, um, who hooked me up. This was about two years ago. And he called me up here and said, Charles, I got the deal for you and your mashir, because he knew it was the only fish I hadn't caught. And he has a friend who's running a uh, float trip down the upper Ganges, right where it comes out of the Himalayas. And it's like a five-day float. And I've had both my hips replaced three times. And oh I've gosh. had both shoulders replaced and both knees replaced. And so I looked into it and there's no rate, there's no phone contact, no radio contact. And it's a really rough river and a rough float. And my wife and I just decided we're just going to have to skip that one. <laughs> well, I think that's fair if it's your last one. Is that the only option? Yeah. That's so, that's yeah. so, my brain's, I'm scanning my brain thinking about who I know right now. Yeah, I think they're all rafting trips, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's almost good to have one hole in your life plan you know it's almost good rather than having completed it um it's almost good to have one one gap and to say okay that's fine i'm good with that. i can live with that i like your optimism <laughs> that's what i do right now exactly yeah. yeah so when did you first start fishing then were you doing that through school and through your young years or did it happen after you graduated now, my father was a big fisherman and he fished all over the place and he would start he started taking me when I was about six. Oh, okay early and yeah and um, he had a friend who owned an island in the Bahamas it was Walker's Key the right. northernmost uh, island in the Abaco chain 
where Flip Pallet later made the Walker Key Chronicle. And at this point, this is way before Flip Pallet. Um, at this point, it belonged to a guy who owned a helicopter company. It was a private island. And my father and I would fly down there and fish down there long before people were using fly rods for bonefish. We'd use spinning rods and live shrimp. And I got hooked on that. And then we were in the very early days of the Keys in Alamorada, uh, fishing with Jack Brothers and George Hommel and those guys who really pioneered that fishery down there. Um, and he would take me to Iceland with him for salmon. And everywhere he went, I was his fishing buddy. And so, you know, I started fishing when I was six. And we had a lake. He bought a lake outside of Birmingham where I now live six months a year um, in Alabama. And I learned to fish on that lake. So every day I walk out, I have a boathouse, I get in my boat, go out on the lake, and I'm fishing a lake that I've been fishing for 75 years. Bass that's lake? Great. What's, what's in it? Yeah, a bass lake. Bass, crappie, and bluegill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you, you said that you went to prep school, and excuse my ignorance, but is that like a boarding school where you, did you have to go yeah. away for school? Yeah, I, I lived in Alabama, and this place was in Connecticut. You know, it was a sort of famous um, Eastern prep school. At that point, um, had no girls in it. If it had, I would have stayed. But it was, uh, you know, it was classic English prep school kind of thing. English, they call them public schools over there. Eaton and uh, what are the other ones? Um, there are a bunch of them in England. These were Groton, Choate, uh, Andover. Exeter, all school, Lawrenceville, those schools were based on that English system. And it just didn't suit me. Um, wasn't what I wanted to do. So I didn't stay very long. Right. Got it. So did you end up graduating? Oh, yeah. I ended up graduating from high school and, and from college. And then I got a Master of Fine Arts degree in creative writing from the University of Iowa, the Iowa's Writers' Workshop. And that was the most significant part of my education because I had three mentors at Iowa, um, all of them great novelists, Kurt Vonnegut, who you may have heard of, uh, Vance Bougeli, and Dick Yates. And they were all major American novelists. And I took poetry under Donald Justice, who was a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning poet. So I was studying under professional writers and it was it was wonderful. It was everything I wanted education to be. So, um, you know, I wound up, even though I fought it for a long time, I wound up being pretty well educated. <laughs> I, I would say so. Um, let's talk a little yeah. bit about submitting your first pieces of writing. How did that all happen, specifically in the fly fishing industry? Well, I was doing articles from the time I was about 18 or 19. And uh, most of those were outdoor related articles. And right after graduate school, as I told you, I got married young and we had children young. And I, when I was in graduate school, I had one child and a wife. And when I got out of graduate school, not before I finished, the semester before I finished, we were pretty broke. And my advisor, Vance Bougeli, came to me and said, there's a job opening in Wisconsin for a writer on a Title III program. Title III was a government program back then. They don't do this anymore. Uh, arts education. And this was in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And they needed a writer. So I, he said it pays, back in those days, a lot of money. It was like 70,000 bucks a year. And that was a fortune for me. And so I took it and he let me 
fish my MFA in Hampshire from Iowa. All I had to do, left to do, was my thesis. And so I did my thesis while I was working in Wisconsin. And while I was there, uh, I wanted to start a novel. And so um, I began work on that. And when the, the Title III program lasted for three years, and at the end of it, I became the director of it. The director of it had a heart attack, quit, made me the director. So I was in charge of the whole program, had $10 million, 25 people working under me. And it was great. And it was a very successful program. So at the end of the program, the Ford Foundation flew a guy down to Green Bay, where we were, and offered me the job of, of being the head of a new division of the Ford Foundation called Arts and Education. And so I had a choice, and I was just beginning my novel, and I had a choice of going to Washington with a huge salary um, and running this Ford Foundation thing or writing my novel. And so my wife and I sat down at the kitchen table. We had this talk. At this point, we had three children. And I said, you know, I can either take a job, I can either take this job, and we're set for life. You know, we don't have to worry about money again, or... I do this novel, take a chance. Nobody may, may ever buy it um, and don't know what our future is going to be. She said, you got to do, you got to do it. You got to take the shot, buddy. You know, so I did. And we moved to New Hampshire where one of the people who worked for me had an uncle who was going into Vista and he had a beautiful house on Lake Sunapee in, in New Hampshire. And he gave it to us for two years. And so I went to New Hampshire, wrote my book, it was a very lucky book. I had been a bodybuilder, a weightlifter when I was young and um, was still lifting weights. And I still do. And so I wrote a novel about bodybuilding and it was called Stay Hungry. And it was the it, it was a lucky book. It, it came out really well. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. It was turned into a movie. Uh, directed by Bob Rafelson, who had directed Five Easy Pieces and um, produced, um, uh, what's the name of the movie? Um, King of Martin Gardens. Anyway, the movie starred Jeff Bridges and Sally Fields, and it was the first movie, first movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger was in. And so Arnold, I had met Arnold when he first came to this country, because I'd done a magazine article about him and he did a great job in it. So then that book was really lucky for me and it kicked off my career. It let me know that I could do this as a profession and it made me some dough. We stayed in New Hampshire. And then my second book was a follow-up to Stay Hungry because Arnold was so interesting. And I started going out to California, hanging out with him and these other bodybuilders out in the golden age of bodybuilding in Santa Monica in the 70s. And I did a book called Pumping Iron, which was then made into a movie also. And those two were great successes. So, you know, just lucky. I mean, you know, this thing, uh, finding Arnold and, and doing the whole bodybuilding thing just fell in my lap. And it allowed me to just continue my career. And I never had to look back after that. Wow, that is incredible. I wouldn't say it's so much lucky as talented and hardworking and taking a chance and all of all of that obviously combines into um, success. So <laughs> congratulations, that's huge. 
it was great. And as I say, it was mostly just, you know, sometimes fortune just lines things up for you. And it's like when I was over in Louisiana, I was um, uh, the one day when we couldn't fish, Meredith took all of us were a big group of people bowling, right? I hadn't been bowling in 40 years. And I was thinking about what was over there. Once in a while, you get exactly the right stroke and all the pins come down. <laughs> you know, you get exactly the right release on the ball and all the pins come down. And that was what happened with bodybuilding with me. And then later on in my life with another thing that fell in my lap, which was paintball. Two other guys and I invented paintball. I read this. And that I too think it's just so fell interesting. In my lap. <laughs> Can, okay, <laughs> hang on. Tell tell me about paintball. I've got fishing questions, but I, I need to hear the paintball story from you. Yeah, the paintball story. The short version of it was that my best friend back then was a very highly competitive trader on Wall Street. And he and I competed at everything. He lived in New York. I lived in New Hampshire. And so we were talking one day about the nature of survival. And he believed and argued that survival was a um, an instinct that you either had or you didn't have. And if you had it, you could, you could survive in any circumstance, any context. I believe, on the other hand, still do, that, that survival and success are learned characteristics and specific to a particular environment. And so I argued with Hayes that he could survive in the jungle of New York, on in the jungle of Wall Street, much better than I could, because I knew nothing about it. But I had grown up in the woods hunting and fishing, and that if he came in the woods, he I would I'd out-survive him. So we had this argument all summer long. We rented a house in Martha's Vineyard. We argued about it. We didn't know how to solve it. I went home. I was raising sheep then. I had a catalog for sheep farmers. And in it was this gun that sheep farmers used to shoot bread use. And they'd shoot a paintball so that they know that used in bread, right? So I had this epiphany. I ordered two of these guns. Hayes came up. We went out in the woods and shot at each other. And, and we put on camo clothes, goggles, took two of these guns, and we had 100 acres of woods out behind my house. He started one end, I started the other. It was like, who's going who's gonna to survive in this situation? And, you know, I mean, I had all the advantages, and so I shot him first. And But we had such a good time that we thought, what if we got 12 guys together? And they were all demonstrably successful surviving people. And we put them all in the woods. They all had guns. And we created a kind of flag situation where we put four flags in, a, in a, each one, a flag station for white flag, green flag, red flag, blue flag. And the, the job, the, the survival situation was you had to go and collect one of each of these flags and be the first one out to a, um, a station, having having gotten all the four flags without being shot. And so we got 12 guys together and we played this game in 1981, in June, I think it was, with 12 of my friends who were all, we had a 
Uh, we had a Wall Street trader. We had a famous turkey hunter from Alabama. We had an elk, hunt, elk hunting guide from Montana. We had a Green Beret lieutenant. We had a, a movie producer. We had all these different different guys who were all very successful. And there was a lot of a lot of testosterone going on. You know, a lot of a lot of male bumping chests and stuff. And it was so much fun. So there were three writers who came, friends of mine who came to this. They wrote stories about it. We didn't think it was a game. We didn't have that anybody else would want to play. We didn't think it was a business. None of that. The articles came out, one in Time magazine, one in Sports Afield, and one in Sports Illustrated magazine, Bob Jones. And I got deluged with mail from people all over the country saying, how do we play this? So Hayes Noel, my best friend who started this with me, and another guy, friend of ours in New Hampshire, started this little company where we bought a lot of these guns from this company, and we would put, we'd buy a shoebox, we'd put the gun, some of the paint pellets, a map, um, had how you do the map, an old pair, a pair of shop goggles, and a little compass. And the thing would cost us 15 bucks and we'd sell it for 50. And we could not sell them fast enough. So we started this company called National Survival Game, which was the first paintball company. And we had dealers who would start their own fields to play the game. And then it just boomed from then on. I have could you could you patent it or have some sort of rights to it uh, for for future yeah. like like nowadays today where people play paintball? Do you profit off of that? No, it wasn't patentable. We had a company. We made um, a lot of money off of it. Uh, I got out of it because I wasn't writing. My job was publicity in the company. And so I went on the Today Show, the Good Morning America Show, the Phil Donahue Show, promoting this thing. And I was doing nothing but promoting paintball, and I wasn't writing anymore. So I went to my two partners and I said, I want you guys to buy me out. And they did for a big chunk of change. And I haven't played paintball since, except when I went to get inducted into the Paintball Hall of Fame. And I played one game up in Pennsylvania then. Uh, but it blew up after that. And other companies came in. Daisy got in it. All these companies started making these really uh, sophisticated guns that were, you know, that would shoot many paintballs. Now they shoot 15 paintballs a second. You know, oh I mean, my these rifles and stuff. So, and they don't play the game that we played originally, which required you to be able to read a compass to figure out where the flag stations were. And it required wood, wood skills. You had to be stealthy and you had to have a strategy. Now it's just all about shooting people. You know, it's a, the more people you can shoot, the quicker, the better. Um, so it's a lot of fun. But the answer to your question is, no, I don't profit off of it anymore. But I profited off it very well at the very beginning. Yeah. And you were part of the beginning of it. I mean, it's it's a very interesting story. I remember when I first looked you up, I my jaw dropped because I just had no idea that you were the paintball guy. But <laughs> you're just full of surprises. It's a strange thing to have on your resume, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So fishing, um, the fishing writing, did that come after the bodybuilding books? No, I started that when I was really young. When I, you were 18 was, or 19? Yeah, the first article I did was on fishing for snook in Mexico, and I did it for a newspaper. 
And I thought, this is great. You know, they're going to pay me, to, not much, but they're going to pay me and, and I'm going to get to go on these fishing trips. So I kept doing it a little bit of time and I got in with Sports of Field and then Field and Stream and then Outdoor Life and then finally Sports Illustrated, which kicked me up a notch. Uh, and then Men's Journal and Esquire and, you know, and I'm still, I've got two books of my collected fishing stories that are out, both of them still in print. And um, so, you know, it's been a great, I, as you must know, I mean, you do the same thing. I mean, fishing has been a passport for you too. Um, and it's a wonderful passport. It's a wonderful way to see the world, have something to write about in my case um, and have somebody pay for the trip. Yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's not always the case. Um. <laughs> But it's a great way to see the world and have somebody else pay for your seeing it. You know, that's what it's been for me. And I've got, you know, at this point, probably over 100 articles that I've done on, you know, in various places where I've fished. Um, and I tried not to keep my journalism just on fishing. So I've written about architecture. I was an art history major in college. I've written about art history. I've written about literary uh, issues. I've written literary essays. And so fishing is a part and a big part, a big component of what I write about, but not, it's not altogether that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So Mississippi or um, Alabama, is that where you still reside? Yeah. Yeah, and I still live. I still live half the year in Alabama. The wintertime, we live in Alabama on the lake that I told you about that my father bought back in the 50s. And then in the other six months, we live in paradise in Nova Scotia. You you were up there, weren't you, at one point? I just missed meeting you. You were at, on the Marguerite River, as I remember, at that conclave that they have up there. I was in New Brunswick. I in don't New recall. Yeah. But my family's from Newfoundland. So I definitely have spent my fair share of time over on the Maritimes. But Nova Scotia, otherwise known as New Scotland, it's um, yeah. it's one of the most special. I almost feel like it's kind of, I mean, it's forward, it's moving forward, but you can go back east and still feel like you're, like times haven't quite moved as fast as maybe they have in Vancouver. I don't, does that sound like I'm being unkind or is that pretty accurate? No, no, no. That's exactly right. That's what we love about it. It's like living back in the 50s, you know. Yeah. We don't lock our car. We don't lock our house. There's no crime. You cross the street, all the cars stop. People, yeah. people are polite. They're kind. There's none of the kind of divisiveness that we have in the U.S. right now um, up there. So we we love it. How do, I'm what? shocked right now because I figured you were going to tell me you lived half the year in Alabama and half the year in Florida. Nova Scotia? What? Let me just, I have to regroup on this so that I can actually kind of think about where I'm going to take this conversation. How did that happen? Well, I wrote a whole book about it called A Family Place. 
about how we came to be in Nova Scotia. And it basically was um, when we lived in New Hampshire, I used to go to the Maritimes, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, to shoot woodcock and grouse because I love bird shooting and I train and raise bird dogs. And I used to go up there to shoot. And then I found out about the Marguerite River and I started going up to fish with salmon. And I loved it. And I took my wife up there. She loved it and and built a little camp up there where we could go for a few weeks in the summer. And that's the way it started. And we got more and more, fell more and more in love and built a much bigger place. And we've been there ever since for 32 years. Wow. And you don't have any problems with being American? You were able to to kind of get through the line before it got too difficult? We are uh, permanent residents of Nova Scotia, which is of Canada, which is the next step to being a citizen. So we, we went ahead and did that, got that permanent residency. So they couldn't kick us out. And they had to let us in. So we could get in during COVID when none of my friends could cross the border. Um, and we love it. We feel half Canadian at this point. We love everything about Canada. I knew I liked you. <laughs> so what about <laughs> what about fishing then? Are you are you there during the the timing for the salmon? Are you there for the migration? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I mean that's that's part of the reason I live up there. Um, my home river is the Marguerite, and we have a cabin on the river that's an hour from our main house. So I go up there all summer. Topher goes up there with me oh. every summer and every fall in October. Right. All, the, all the pieces are coming together now. Okay, I gotcha, I gotcha. How have the right. runs been yeah. over the last few years? Have you Has it been as doom and gloom as they say, or is it starting to come right? Doom and gloom off and on. I mean, we had um, the overall um, the overall direction of Atlantic salmon is downward. There's no question about that for a lot of reasons, too complicated to go into. But we have peaks. It's, it's like the stock market, you know, it'll go down, it'll come up, it'll go down, come up. Right now, last year, we had one of the best seasons we've had in, in 10 or 15 years on my river, on the Marguerite. Other rivers in the Maritimes were not so hot. So it varies from river to river and from year to year. Um, but we also have great trout fishing in Nova Scotia. We have great striped bass fishing in Nova Scotia, smallmouth bass, um, saltwater fish, flounder, bluefin tuna. You know, it's just a, and great bird shooting. It's just a, if you, if you like the outdoor pursuits, it's paradise. Yeah, right. Oh, how interesting. Okay. And then back in Alabama, um, what what about fishing there? I've actually never been there and was just recently, like I said, down in Arkansas. And the guys, one of the guys we had dinner with yeah. is also from Alabama. And he was saying that the fishing's incredible. It's very good. Yeah. I mean, we've got largemouth bass, in some places, smallmouth bass. Uh, we have some trout rivers that are um, basically they're uh, tailwater rivers and just below the dams where the water is cold, we catch some trout. I don't do much of that because it's really not the kind of trout fishing I enjoy. But we also have a, a coast, um, a gulf, a coast on the Gulf in Alabama. And so we've got all the redfish and speckled trout and cobia and all those saltwater fish. 
Um, and then red fishing all along the Gulf Coast. Uh, and then I go every year for at least two weeks every year to the Bahamas still. I've been going every year since I was 10 years old to fish for bonefish. And uh, it's an easy hop from Birmingham to the Bahamas. So that's easy for me. With, with your writing, did you ever struggle with feeling as though you needed to write about techniques and, and kind of go down the how-to route? To, no, no. And talk to me about that. How did you... How did you kind of hold that stance? Did you ever feel the pressure? Did you watch your peers get sucked into that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, and I admire the people who do that well. It's just not my approach to it. My fishing stories, I have two books. One is called The Next Valley Over, and the other is called Waters Far and Near. And they're both collections of fishing stories. And there's not one story in them that's about technique. My stories are about the people I meet, the places I go, the cultures I'm in. Um, fishing is just the kind of vehicle that gets me into the story. Um, and I write about the fishing, but never about technique. Um, there are too many other people out there doing that, and they're doing it better than I could do it. So that's just not my approach. Right. And, and you never felt pressured to go down that road? Never did. Excellent. Never, never so did. So no. when it comes to a series of short stories, which I'll admit, I usually steer clear from that style of book only because I love a timeline. And I love to be able to start at A and work my way through Z and put the book down and feel as though I've really covered some ground. I've recently started reading short stories or you know, series of short stories and am loving it. And in writing, yeah. in doing my own writing, I'm considering now, instead of having this daunting task of starting at A and trying to go all the way to Z, I'm wondering if I should be doing short stories. But then when I try to do that, I don't know how to tie it all together. Do they need to tie together? What's your, what's your trick or advice to a young writer? No, they don't need to tie together necessarily. What you're calling short stories, technically a short story is fiction. Oh, okay. And I think we're talking about it's nonfiction stories, and those are called articles, or, or but not short stories. But if you want to write, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I think for a young writer, it's much better to start writing articles about fishing or travel or whatever it is you do, uh, rather than a long project, and then work into a book if you want to. But there's nothing that says that the articles that you write have to have a connecting theme. You can just take a collection of articles and put them together into a book. Do yours tie together? If I were to start, are, are they at least in sequence as far as timing? Or are they yeah. kind of, are they yeah, no. scattered? Are they what? Scattered. Uh, no, they're scattered. I mean, my two volumes of fishing articles are all over the world. I mean, each one of them is in a different place. And there's nothing connecting them other than me, the narrator, you know, the writer. And they are really travel stories more than they're fishing stories. Um, because fishing stories are about almost entirely the fishing, you know, the, the little real screams kind of stories, uh, the equivalent of the grip and grin photographs. Um, and that's never interested me. I mean, what's interested me now, particularly now at my age, because I've caught everything I want to catch, and you know, is the people I'm with. 
and the place where I am and getting into the culture of where I am and investigating, um, you know, the professions of the people that I meet and so forth. And so if you don't have a copy, order a copy of Waters Farm Here or The Next Valley Over. And um, they're both still in print. You can get them on Amazon. And it'll show you kind of how you put together um, a collection of articles. I mean, they're both kind of traditional books in the sense that they um, represent a long tradition of writing of this kind. Tom McGuane, um, um, William Bradford Huey, um, Russell Chatham. Uh, these are all people who put together stories like I've done. Um, and, you know, you read one of these collections and you say, yeah, I can do that, you know. And then you also find out what in those stories interests you. Is it the fishing by itself? Well, in that case, that's what you write about. Ignore everything else. If it's the people and the places that you're going to, then the, the fishing becomes secondary. But you kind of find your voice and you find your way into the way you want to be or that kind of a writer by reading people who've done it well. Yeah, and you're right, actually. And I'm eating my words because I do, I mean, I cut my teeth on Roderick Haig Brown, who does obviously a lot of that as well. And obviously McGuane and, and some of the greats. But I guess I'm just having a really hard time creatively with mine and trying to figure out how to tie them all together. Can you have an underlying tone that remains consistent throughout the book? I mean, not just your style, but your, can you, can you kind of come back to the same people and, and have that tie together or do they need to be completely well, you, independent? No, well, you can, you can come back to the same people and you can find some unifying device to, to thread all the stories on the same um, length of chain or you can just have discrete stories, independent stories that have no connection to each other other than it's you who's telling the story. Right. Okay, I'm going to ponder that. So for your own writing, are you continuing to do to do so? Are you still writing about fishing specifically or people, I should say, and culture? No, I'm continuing to write about whatever interests me. And if that happens to be fishing, then great. I just finished a long historical novel about St. Francis, Francis of Assisi. It fascinated me. And uh, so I did a long book on St. Francis. I've been lucky in my career because I've been able to write about what interests me and go to the places that allowed me to write about what interests me. So I'm going to keep writing until they put me six feet under. You know, I mean, <laughs> writing is like breathing to me. And it's the way I kind of make sense out of my life. Uh, and so I love it that I have so many interests, you know, art, architecture, literature, um, philosophy. Um, and I can write about all those different things. Fishing is just one of them. What's the story behind St. Francis? Well, he just fascinated me. I mean, um, I started reading about him. Um, my friend Ethan Hawke, with whom I do a lot of work, uh, and I talked about, he's a, Ethan's a very philosophic guy and a very spiritual guy, as am I. And we started talking about St. Francis, who represented all of the values that are important to me. Um, and I had never read anything about St. Francis. So I started, he's been, more has been written about St. Francis than any other 
historical figure second to Jesus. And there are hundreds and hundreds of books out there. So I started reading them and I read about 40 of them and decided that this is something I needed to write a book on. And so I spent 10 years on this book and read a total of over 40 books on St. Francis and just finished it a year, less than a year ago. Oh, so it's completed. It is. I just turned it into my agent. Wow, that's exciting. So when can we... So we're hoping, we're hoping we've, well, we're hoping we'll find a publisher. You know, it's a, it's a 500-page novel about a 12th century saint. And those are not just popping off the bookshelves. <laughs> so, you know, we may or may not find a publisher. I'm hopeful that we will. I think we will. But he's got his job. My agent has a job cut out for him in finding somebody who will publish it. How is your how does your book differ from the rest of the books out there? On this on this subject? My book about St. Francis? Mm-hmm. Well, most almost all of the books, the other books are um hagiographies, it's called, which means um it's a nonfiction account of the life of St. Francis. Mine is a novel. I novelize St. Francis. In other words, I don't have to stick to the facts. I can invent situations, people, and so forth. And as far as I was able to tell, there'd only been two or three novels about Francis, one famous one by Nico Kazantzakis, the great Greek writer. And that was that was a very good novel. The others were not really all that good. So I figured there was a niche there that I could fill. Um, I've got a, a guy here who I've got to meet. That's where uh, right at the hour. It's no problem at all. Are we? Yeah. Yeah. We're all um, good. I, I, I told him it would be about an hour and I've got to meet up. But this has been so much fun. And I've got to say, I'm a big admirer of yours because you live your life straight ahead and you live your life on your own terms, as I am able to understand it. And you, there's a great phrase from the great American poet, Robert Bly, who I wrote about, um, did some articles about him and his injunction in life, which I've taken from my own now is follow your bliss. And you've done that. So have I. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for people who are able to shape a life around their bliss and follow it all the way, all the way. So I congratulate you on that. Oh, thank you, Charles. I, that means a lot. Thank you. And likewise, thank you for paving the trail so that we know that we won't die if we follow our hearts. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. I hope you come up to Nova Scotia sometime. And if you do, please get in touch with me and let me show you the ropes up there. Topher and I would love to host you anytime you want to come, show you the Marguerite and the Middle and the Bedeck, the rivers that we fish up there. They're all wonderful. We'd love to have you come anytime. Oh, I will take you up on that. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, April. Likewise. I hope to see you soon. I hope so, too. Good luck. Thanks. Bye. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 